Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Is everybody up here already? Anybody else? K through fourth? Okay, we got them all. Fabulous. You guys are doing good? Yeah? Summer's almost over. Ready to go back to school? Woohoo! Oh, I got one. One's excited. <laughs> oh, well. School is fun. School's fun, too. I know summer's fun, but school's fun. All right. So, question for you today. Do you guys know any other religions besides Christianity? Can you think of one? No? It's okay. All right. Can't even think of one. All right. Have you heard of uh, Hinduism or Islam, Buddhism? No? Okay, that's all right. You're young. You will. You will hear about these things. Okay? You're young now, but you're going to hear about these things because there's a lot of other religions. Our religion is not the only one. There's bunches of them out there, and there's a lot of people, even in our community, that that don't worship our God or Jesus. They worship different gods. And um, there are actually, our world today tries to tell us that all religions are basically the same. Whether it's Christianity or Islam or whatever, they're basically the same. And you can just kind of pick and choose whichever one you want. And if it works for you, that's great. That's kind of what our world teaches but we don't believe that. We actually believe that Christianity is very different from other religions. In fact, I would say not just different, we would say better. And some people would think, well, that's awfully arrogant of you, thinking yours is the best. But it's not. It's not our, we don't think our religion is better because of um, some personal reasons. There's actually very good reasons why we think Christianity is better than other religions. And I'm going to give you two of them. One is truth. Ariel, what's truth? Do you know what truth is? Okay, not a lie. Good, right. That's good. But you know there are people today that think that tr truth is flexible. You just pick what, you know, whatever is true for you is fine. I believe something different, but it's true for me. And we can believe different truths. But we don't believe that, okay? We believe in absolute truth. In other words, we think something's either real or it isn't. And do you know that there is more evidence to back up the truth of our Bible than any other religion? Yeah. Jesus and, and the things that we believe, we have more evidence to back up the truth of what our religion teaches than any other religion. So that's, that's one really important way why Christianity is different. Another one is a word called grace. Do you know what grace is? I'm, I'm just challenging you with all sorts of new ideas today. Grace is when you get something you don't deserve. Right? It's like when you get uh, a nice present from somebody or, you know, maybe grandma or grandpa hands you money just because they like you. No reason for it. They just want to do something nice. 
Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. See, and 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 he doesn't do that because necessarily because you. Well, but he doesn't do it because you deserve it. He doesn't do it because you earned it. He does it because he loves you and he just wants to bless you, right? That's why grandmas and grandpas do those kinds of things for us. It's really cool, right? Well, Christianity teaches that salvation, going to heaven someday, is based on grace. We're the only religion that teaches that. Every other religion that's out there, they teach that you get to heaven by the things that you do. You have to earn your way to heaven. You have to earn salvation. Christianity is the only one that teaches no. In fact, it doesn't teach that we don't earn our way to heaven. It teaches that we can't earn our way to heaven. The only way we get to go to heaven is if our God gives it to us as a free gift. That makes us very different than all the religions. And so these are really important, okay? Why is Christianity better than any other religion? Number one, truth. And number two, grace. Okay? And, and it's important for you guys to understand this, even if you don't know it now, because, trust me, the day is going to come. You're going to go back to school pretty soon, right? You might meet somebody at your school who practices a different religion than you. You might talk to people at your school who don't believe the same things you do. I guarantee you're going to hear things on TV that are different than what we believe. And so you have to understand why we believe what we believe and why we think it's important. Okay? All right. You guys were very good. I know I, that, was, that was some pretty big stuff today, but you guys did well. So here's the question. Did you earn this or is it a free gift? <laughs> I'll let, you, I'll let you figure that one out on your own. All right. Good. Enjoy your class downstairs. Yeah, get the biggest one. All right. Okay, I realize that was pretty heavy today for little kids, maybe even for us. But I do think it's important that we talk to our kids about these things, um, especially when they're little. Uh, because if we wait until they're old enough, it may be too late already. Our children are under a constant barrage of false teaching. They get it through television. They get it through the music that they listen to. They're getting it every day, day in and day out at school. So it starts at a very early age. And, and it's important for us as parents, obviously, but also as a church to be talking about these things with our kids because uh, if we don't, they're not going to be prepared when they start running into these Ideas that challenge what we believe as Christians. And I think it's important for us too, not just for kids, it's also important for adults. There are far too many Christian adults who couldn't answer those same questions that I just asked. Why is Christianity different from other religions? Why is it better? Why should we ask anybody to, to stop believing what they believe and come join us? 
if all, if all religions are the same, you know, shouldn't we just let them be? So it's important. And it, it's not just other religions, by the way, that we have to be concerned with. It's other Christianities. Now, what do I mean by that? What's an other Christianity? Um, well, there's the prosperity version. God just wants you to be healthy and wealthy and successful. There's the liberal version where uh, whatever our culture says uh, is more important and more true than what our Bible says. Then there's even the ultra-weird versions where people are rolling around in the aisles, barking like dogs, doing all kinds of goofy things. Um, you know, that, that kind of stuff. People buy into fake religion. People buy into fake Christianity because they don't know the real Christianity. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. So let's go back to our study in the book of Hebrews, which we have entitled, Jesus is Greater. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe that? Do we believe Jesus is greater than any other religion? Or is he just one valid choice among many? We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8, but before we get started, I'd like to pray and ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, uh, these are important uh, questions, important truth, particularly in our day, because we live in a society that says truth is whatever you want it to be. You can pick and choose whatever works for you. That's fine. I pray, Lord, that you would help us through this lesson today to understand just exactly why it is that we believe that Jesus is greater, that Christianity is not only the best choice, it is the only choice. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've got a lot of ground to cover today, so let's just jump right in. Hebrews chapter 8, I want to read the first six verses. It says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises." Um, so we're continuing this lengthy section that we've been in uh, ever since chapter 5, and it's going to continue all the way to chapter 10, which is talking about Jesus Christ's high 
priesthood. And here in chapter 8, specifically this morning, what we want to focus on is uh, a greater covenant. A greater covenant. And um, what I mean by that is specifically, we're going to be talking this morning about the superiority of the new covenant. Now let me explain what that means, okay? Uh, As we start off here, chapter 8, verses 1 through uh, 2 and maybe even 3 are kind of transitionary. Uh, Verse 1 looks backward and, and he's kind of summing up some of the main points that he's made so far, right? He says this is the main point of the things that we're saying. So he's taking a breath and, and pointing backwards to the things that he's been talking about. He says we have such a high priest. What kind of high priest? The Melchizedekian high priesthood. That's what we've been studying the last couple of weeks. We have that kind of priesthood, the kind that's been described in chapter 7. He also says that this high priest is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. That goes all the way back to chapter 1. He made that point in chapter 1, that Jesus Christ was, uh, had risen and was seated at the right hand of the Father. So, so that kind of reviews some of the important points of where we've been. Um, and all of this, as he has systematically shown us throughout the book, was prophesied in the Old Testament. He's not making any new claims here. He's, he has showed us step by step. Look, the Old Testament told us this was going to happen. Told us this was coming. Told us it was going to be this way. Then in verse 2, he starts to look forward to uh, some of the elements in this continuing argument. He, he mentions the tabernacle. Right? The tabernacle. And uh, he talks about the true tabernacle. What does that mean? You know, to a first century Jew, and even to a first century Jewish Christian, there was only one tabernacle. And that obviously was uh, the place where God dwelt, where He manifested His physical presence. This was the tabernacle that God commanded Moses to create in the wilderness, which was later superseded by the temple. And I think that's what he's referring to here when he says the sanctuary. That's, that's a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. And so last week, we learned that the Levitical priesthood uh, was always intended to be temporary. Uh, God, when God instituted that, He never meant for that to be the final word, the final way that men would approach Him. Here we see that this also applies to the most holy place in all the world, the place where God physically dwelt, where His presence was on earth. The tabernacle and the temple. And that would be yet another startling claim that would have bowled over His readers. That this idea that the tabernacle, the one that they had known, was not the true tabernacle. And once again, the author, he's going to back up these statements that he's making by showing us where it's revealed in the Old Testament Scriptures. And as he does, what he's going to do is add to our understanding of the transience of the first covenant or the temporary nature of the first covenant covenant. Having established, as he has already, that uh, Jesus is our new high priest, 
now let us ask this question. What does a high priest do? What's the purpose? And in verse 3, he points out here that one of the purposes of the high priest is that it is their job to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And if that's true of every high priest, and if Jesus is also a high priest, then he says it is necessary that he also will have gifts and sacrifices to offer. But it's going to be different because Jesus isn't on earth. And notice he says in verse 4, if he were on earth, he would not even be a priest. Why is that? Because at the time that the book of Hebrews was written, there were already priests in the temple offering these gifts and sacrifices. And as we saw last week, that was a priesthood that the law determined would be passed down from father to son in the tribe of Levi. Jesus isn't of the tribe of Levi, so he doesn't qualify for that priesthood. That's why he was appointed to a different kind of priesthood. But while the author of Hebrews is writing this, there's still a temple in Jerusalem. There's still priests day after day, offering those gifts and sacrifices. What they didn't realize, those priests, is that they were serving what he calls here in verse 4, excuse me, verse 5, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Now that's a really, really important concept. They're serving a copy and a shadow. And to explain what he means by this, he's actually going to refer to this command that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai way back in Exodus chapter 25, verse, 20, uh, verse 40. Excuse me, Exodus 25, 40. He's actually quoting that in verse 5. Some of your Bible translations may highlight, highlight that by putting the words in italics or something like that. Not all of them do. But he's actually quoting the Old Testament when he says, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. That's Exodus 25:40. That was the command that God gave to Moses. And what he's telling us is that when God said, I want you to, to make it according to the pattern shown to you, he's not saying, he wasn't saying to Moses, here's a blueprint. Here's a plan that I've drawn out for how you're going to build this. No, what he did is he showed him a vision of the true tabernacle, the real place, God's dwelling place, the real place of worship in heaven. And he said, Moses, I want you to copy this one. Make it just like, like this as best you can on earth. And then, based on this, he says, verse 6, now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Why? Because while the earthly priests were ministering in the temple on earth, Jesus Christ was in heaven ministering from the real temple, the real place of worship. The one here on earth is just a copy. It's just a shadow. 
Now, the details of this, the stuff that he's mentioning here, the tabernacle and the sacrifice, he's actually going to get into in chapter 9. So we're kind of going to, he's introducing it here, but we're kind of going to set it aside until the next couple weeks because before he gets into all that, he wants to explain how all of this relates to a better covenant, right? That's what he says in verse 6. Um, it's, it's a better covenant. And so um, I think in order for us to, to understand a better covenant, first we have to understand what is a covenant. And I know I've asked you that question before, and, and usually the way we answer that question is we'll say something like, it's an agreement or it's a contract. That's not wrong. However, a covenant is a little bit more than just an agreement or a contract. The idea of a contract is helpful uh, for, for describing the binding nature. right? Because we, we understand when you sign a contract, when you make that sort of agreement, it, it binds you, it obligates you to something. And that's important. That is an important part of a covenant. But there's more to it than just that because what's missing in our understanding of contract is that a covenant also has something to do with relationship see the contracts that we make today are often with parties that we don't even know we have contracts with car dealers with insurance companies with uh, the credit card company we have contracts with uh, cable companies, right? How deep a relationship do you have with your cable company right now? Right? Not much. In fact, as soon as your contract's up and another better deal comes along, you're jumping ship. You don't care. That's right. I can save 10 bucks a month. Woohoo! Right? So, a covenant does much more than just obligate two parties to fulfill certain terms like a contract does. A covenant binds people into an unbreakable relationship with each other. The closest parallel that we have in our culture today is marriage. And we often refer to marriage as a covenant because it, it is a contract, that's true. There is a binding. When we marry someone, we obligate ourselves to agreements. But more than that, a marriage is, uh, is an intimate relationship that transcends a mere contract. The first covenant, which is referred to here, was not just a contract between God and Israel. There were elements of it, but it was a relationship. That's why you see um, it described in the Old Testament with phrases like, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's why Israel is referred to as the children of God. Our relationship with God today is also covenantal. But it's better. It's a better covenant. Why? Well, because verse 6 says it is established on better 
promises. What are, are these promises? Well, it's outlined for us in the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been found for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. These better promises on which the better covenant are based, I'm going to refer to these as the provisions of the new covenant. The provisions of the new covenant. Now starting in verse 7, you'll notice that he's using the exact same reasoning here that we saw back in chapter 7, verse 11, with regard to the Levitical priesthood. Remember last week he said, if, there, if the Levitical priesthood were going to be the final, there would be no need for there to be prophesied a new and different priesthood. Well, he's saying the same thing here. Just as the prophecy of a new and different priesthood revealed the temporary nature of the Levitical priesthood, the prophecy of a new covenant reveals the temporary nature of the first covenant. It's exactly the same logic, the same kind of reasoning. Now, the, this prophecy of this new covenant is actually found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And it is quoted in its entirety here in verses 8 through 12. It's actually the longest Old Testament quote that you will find in all of the New Testament. And he introduces this quote in verse 8. He says, uh, because finding fault with them. You see that? Because finding fault with them. In other words, the, the first covenant wasn't the problem. That's not why it was temporary, because there was something wrong with it. The problem was with the people. He found fault with them. They couldn't do it, the first covenant. Now, God knew this was going to be the case, and that's why he made provision for the new covenant. And then we go into the quote, all right? He says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. But who does he make this new covenant with? It's with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. See, this new covenant is still with Israel. This is very significant because uh, 
we have to understand that our faith is a continuation of the first covenant, not a replacement. There are some Christians that, that believe that. They say, no, Israel messed up. God put them to the side, and we're now the new Israel. We have replaced them as God's people. Sure, they can come in if they want. You know, they believe in Jesus. We'll let them in. But other than that, no, God has kicked them to the curb. That's not true. The new covenant is with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. And so this is going to impact our understanding of words like annul that we saw last week. What does it mean when it said that the, the Levitical priesthood was annulled. What does it mean in this passage down below in verse 12 when he says that the first co covenant is made obsolete? What does it mean in other places in the New Testament like Romans chapter 6, verses 4 and 15, Galatians chapter 5, verse 18 where it says that we are not under the law. What does that mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is that our religion is lawless. That we can just do whatever we want. Right? So when you think of the new covenant, I want you to think of it in the sense of new as in new and improved. Not, don't think of it as in novel or original. Right? The new covenant is an upgrade. We might even use it, it, it's covenant 2.0. That's how, that's how we would say it in today's lingo, right? It's, it's the next version. It's a better version. But what was the first covenant exactly? Well, in case we had any doubt, he lays it out for us. He says, he says that uh, uh, the, 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 this new covenant is not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers and the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Well, that obviously is referring to the Mosaic Covenant. No question about that, right? That's when that happened, the Exodus. But there were covenants that happened before the Mosaic Covenant, weren't there? So how can he refer to this one as the first? What about the Abrahamic Covenant that came uh, 400 years before? The Mosaic Covenant? See, this new covenant that we're talking about, it supersedes the Mosaic Covenant, but it doesn't supersede the Abrahamic. So when he says the first covenant, he doesn't mean this is absolutely the first ever, but he's saying this is the first in relationship to the, the new one. It's the previous one. Okay? He, this author would recognize that there's the Abrahamic covenant. He's not, he's not ignoring it, he does, and he's not um, uh, trying to say that it doesn't exist or anything like that. Okay? In fact, the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. It never was superseded. We actually studied that a little bit on Wednesday night a couple nights ago, a couple weeks ago. Here's what we need to understand. The church is part of this new covenant. When we talk about the church, we're not talking about something that's entirely brand new. We're talking about something that's included in the upgrade. 
The church is the new feature of Covenant 2.0. It's the latest, greatest thing. See, God didn't abandon Israel and choose us in their place. What He did is He folded us into the new version. Nevertheless, there are significant differences. Okay? When we say 2.0, when we say upgrade, this is a radical upgrade. It's not just, you know, like uh, it, it looks prettier, right? And what we see in this quote from Jeremiah is uh, three provisions that are going to differentiate the new covenant from the first covenant. And the first one is a transformed life. You see that? In verse 10, he says, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. The first covenant, we could call that a pattern of life. It was a way of living. A certain way of living which included things like circumcision, It included dietary restrictions, prescribed forms of worship, how they were to do the sacrifices and all that, okay? It was a pattern of life. And this set the Israelites apart from every other people on the face of the planet. But the problem was, as we've already talked about, no one could do it perfectly. They couldn't. Hard as they tried, they never could. But you have to understand that perfect obedience was never the goal. God didn't give them the first covenant so that they, you know, expecting that they were going to do it. He gave it to them with the understanding that they wouldn't be able to do it. What he was more interested in was their willingness and their humility when they realized that they couldn't do it. And we see this in the Old Testament, all right? Uh, Old Testament passages like Psalm 51, for example. You know this one. This is the one that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. Talk about not following the law, right? And what did he say? Verse 16 and 17. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. What is David saying there? He understood the sacrifice wasn't the point. God didn't, did not institute sacrifice because God loves burnt up animals. He instituted sacrifice because he wanted people to see the seriousness of sin. If you sin, something has to die number one, and number two, to prove to them that they couldn't do it so that they would have this attitude of humble submission to him, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. David knew that. We also see it, another one important, is Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, and I know you know this one because it's one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the entire New Testament. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by what? 
faith, not obedience, not doing the works of the law, not sacrifices, not dietary restrictions. The just shall live by faith, by trust. That's in the Old Testament. This is not a New Testament innovation. It was already there. Jesus illustrated this in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We're not going to take time to turn there. You can write down Luke 18, 9 through 14, but I think most of you are familiar with it. You remember he told this parable of these two guys were praying. One was a Pharisee, and he was saying, oh, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these people or these sinners over here. But then the tax collector said, Lord, I'm not, I'm not worthy. Right? And Jesus said it was the tax collector was the one who was going to be saved. The new covenant is a life that is transformed from the inside out. That's what it means in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, when it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. The law was not obliterated. It was transformed. Now, instead of being carved on tablets of stone, it would be carved on our hearts and in our minds. We follow God's law not as a legal system, but because our heart and mind, our conscience, empowered by the Holy Spirit, tell us something's right or wrong. Well, that's the first provision. The second provision that differentiates the new covenant from the first is a personal relationship. And we see that in verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. The first covenant was with an entire nation. And there were some people in that nation that took it seriously and really believed it. But there were a whole bunch of them that didn't. That's why they kept getting off track. That's why God had to keep sending prophets to exhort them, to warn them, to, to try to turn them back. But notice in the New Covenant, the emphasis is on a direct relationship with those who know the Lord. This is one of the reasons why, this is kind of a side point, but this is one of the reasons why we don't baptize babies here. Okay? That, that is based on an Old Testament, a first covenant model they they people who baptize infants believe that that's the new circumcision and when they baptize that infant they're bringing them into the covenant community just like babies were circumcised and became a part of the covenant community of israel whether they believed in yahweh or not we follow a new covenant model which is radically and fundamentally different where it says that everybody knows the Lord. You're not a part of this new covenant unless you know the Lord. Now this is, this does, when he says that uh, 
that none shall teach. This is not saying that we're abandoning teaching. It's not saying that we have to abandon evangelism, that there's no unsaved people in our midst. It's not saying that. And part of the reason is because we're not quite there yet. Okay, this, this aspect of the new covenant is only something that will be entirely realized when we get to heaven. And when we get to heaven, everybody there is going to know the Lord. There won't be need for evangelism anymore. Okay? Right now we still do, because we're not quite there yet. But the church is closer than Israel was. And the emphasis here is different. The emphasis is on a personal relationship. People who know the Lord. And the third and final provision that differentiates the new covenant from the first is the complete forgiveness of sins. Under the first covenant, the people were constantly being reminded of their sin problem. There were many sacrifices for sin that would be made throughout the year, but it was never completed. The job was never done. They had to keep going back over and over and over again. And this was by design. God did this in order to highlight for them their need, their inability to do it on their own, and to prepare them for the new that was coming. Now, God was merciful. He forgave their sins in the first covenant, just like He does now. But the the emphasis was different. Instead of having to be reminded of sin and of the need for a Savior who was to come, now we look back to a Savior who has already done the work. It's finished. He solved that problem. This new covenant, these these three provisions, he summarizes in verse 13 and says that this new covenant makes the first obsolete. What does that mean to make something obsolete? Well, that word becoming obsolete means uh, to be worn out to reach the end of its usefulness, if you will. Let me give you an example. We see this in in Luke chapter 12, in verse 33. Jesus was talking about the coming kingdom, and in illustration, He said, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide for yourselves money bags which do not grow old a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. That word, do not grow old, that's the same word here that's translated as obsolete. Okay? So what he's saying, when he says that the first has become obsolete, he's saying it's it's worn out. Okay? It served its purpose. And it did it well. But now we replace it, or actually maybe that's not the right word, we build upon it with something new. It's been upgraded. It's been restored. It's been added to. And he he says it's becoming obsolete because at the time that he wrote this, there, there were still sacrifices going on in the temple in Jerusalem. But very soon that was going to come to an end. 
A.D. 70, the Romans came in, tore down the temple, and there hasn't been one there to this day. Now, if someone asked you, what is Christianity? How would you answer that question? I'll tell you, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better description than the one we just read. It's a transformed life. It's a personal relationship, and it is the complete forgiveness of sins. And that's Jeremiah 31. That was written 600 years before the church came into existence. And I'll be honest with you guys, when I compare that description to all the other choices that we have available out there, that's a no-brainer for me. Right? I hope that's true for you too. It's actually remarkable when you think about it. 600 years before the church, Jeremiah was telling us exactly what this new thing was going to look like. And it's beautiful. So the question is, how did they miss it? How did Israel miss it? Why would they choose the burdensome, works-based imitation of the Pharisees instead of this, this beautiful thing that Jesus came to bring to them, prophesied 600 years before His appearance on earth. More to the point, why would these Christians that, that the author is writing this book to, who knew Jesus, who knew what He did on the cross, who knew what the church was, why would they be tempted to go back and settle for something that was a copy, that was a shadow. Well, for them, the answer was persecution. Life was hard. And they were, they were weary of it. And they were just looking for some relief. And they saw that as a way out. And in the short term, it probably would have been. It would have made life easier for them. But at what cost? I think for many today, there are lots of reasons why someone would choose a cheap fake over the real. It can be bad theology. can be ingrained habits. can be the desire for comfort or materialism. But all of those things, they all boil down to one thing, and that's this. It's short-sightedness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9 talks about it. We won't turn there. You can write it down and look it up for yourself. But in that passage, he talks about how we're to build our faith, and he says those who don't are short-sighted. The needs of the moment outweigh eternal matters and we can't see the forest for the trees. 
Because what's going on right here occupies all of our attention and we can't see where we're supposed to be focusing down the road. Guys, our faith is built on foundations laid down in the Old Testament. Okay? It's not something new. It's something improved. What we have is newer and better, not because the first was bad or wrong, but because it was incomplete. Because it was anticipatory. God meant it as step one of a process to something greater, to something better. And that was clearly revealed in the Old Testament. He didn't hide that from them. It's all over. Especially in passages like this, Jeremiah chapter 31. Yet we must look forward and not backward. We, we have to study and apply the Old Testament. Why? Because those who don't know history are what? Doomed to repeat it. And the New Testament tells us very clearly that, that these things were recorded in the Old Testament as examples for us so that we can learn from them. And we need... We need to understand those. We need to apply them to our lives. But there is something greater still to come. So my question is, are we looking forward far enough? Why are you here today? Why are you a Christian. I'm assuming that most of us here today because we consider ourselves Christian. Why are you a Christian? Are you a Christian because you want Jesus to solve today's problems? Or are you looking ahead to the bigger, the greater, the better solution that will solve all the world's problems? That's where we need our focus to be. And if we do that, we will never settle for a cheap imitation when we can have the real deal. Our Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for your death on a cross and your resurrection. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you right now are preparing a place for me, for all of us who believe in you, to come and be with you for all eternity. I realize we're not there yet. I understand that that means that there's going to be problems on this earth, that we're going to have to deal with things that are uncomfortable, things that are not fun. Lord, help us, though, not to settle for a cheap imitation in our desire to solve the temporary problems of this world. Help us, Lord, to keep our focus upon you, upon eternity, when all things will be fixed forever and ever. And we will give you all the praise and all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.